What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This week, I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast is some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Romain Bostic, Taylor Riggs, and Joe Weisenthal. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we took a look at one of the industry's hardest hit by COVID-19 closures, gyms. Fitness clubs have faced a swell of bankruptcies with more than $10 billion of revenue wiped out as clients ditch memberships. And that's according to a report from investment bank Harrison Company. Crunch, which is owned in part by private equity firm TPG, has gyms franchised across the US and globally and has been allowed to reopen on a case-by-case basis. As of now, only 70 locations out of more than 300 total have been able to open their doors back up to members. But they have also been shut out of the area with its biggest imprint, New York, New Jersey and San Francisco. Crunch Worldwide CEO Jim Rowley spoke with us about his push to reopen. We started by asking him, well, if he thinks the pandemic has increased consumer preferences for at-home options like Peloton and fundamentally changed the fitness industry. Well, I don't know that we're worried about Peloton. We think that a lot of our members have Pelotons and they use the gym. So we believe that they can coexist. Uh, We've done several surveys that indicate that a small percentage um, have maybe moved on to at home. But we also believe that isolationism is not the right answer. Just to be completely isolated between Netflix and your Peloton is not good for your social behaviors. Yeah, Jim, good, good, good point. On the back of that, you're also looking at lobbying to get some of these gyms reopened. What are you lobbying for to get some of your gyms reopened? And what does it look like? What are some of the safety measures we could expect? Yeah, it's a great question. So we've spent over a quarter of a million dollars, by the way, making no money since March 17th. We spent over a quarter of a million dollars invested in our cleaning procedures, our training of the of the team members and so forth. We've introduced a new system called AirFix, which actually kills the virus through an air system. Um, the protocols we put in place through a 40-page readiness plan that my team developed, we're prepared and ready. We can socially distance in the club. We've got every other piece of equipment shut down. And here's the most important thing. We can contact Trace. We know when every person, we know their address, their email, their phone number, when they checked into the gym, who the other members they may have been in contact with, other team members. We can do more than most any business. If I go to Safeway, nobody can tell me if anybody in Safeway, Costco, Home Depot was infected or reported back that they were infected with COVID. We can do that. So what does it look like for someone who gets contacted by you? Do you then say you can't come back to our gym for two weeks? And what does that mean for, therefore, the opening process and anyone wanting to really, if they get that message, ever really want to reacquaint themselves with coming back and and sweating next to other people? Yeah, I love the question. So in California, we were open from June 12th to July 13th before we were closed again. We conducted 736,000 workouts just at crunch. And we had four positive tests uh, provided from our members, four out of 736,000. And when the member notified us, we put them on immediate 14-day quarantine. They couldn't access the gym during that period. And they've got to have a doctor's note to come back in saying that they're they're now negative. 
It's curious you caught my attention when you talked about reopening and then having to reshut down. And I think it's safe to say you're not the only business facing that. How does that impact you, your employees? You're thinking about reopening and then reshutting down. It's, it's been it's been incredibly difficult, to be honest with you. I, I felt more defeated um, during this last five months than I did when I was a Marine serving in the Persian Gulf War, to be honest with you. It's, it's been incredible. And the start stopped, the lack of information, Cuomo coming out citing data that gyms are bad, which is just absolutely not correct. Uh, hiding behind data, but they're not sharing it with uh, company leaders like myself. Um, Cuomo not listening to Johns Hopkins and their public health uh, phase reopening guidelines for governors, which indicates that the gyms are at best a medium risk. There was a study conducted in Oslo, which says that the gyms are at no risk if you adhere to cleaning and, and distancing and so forth. You know, as, a, as an industry, because I'm not just speaking for crunch, I'm speaking for all gym owners. We've lost more than $7 billion since July for, or through July 1st. Um, there's an estimate that maybe 25% of all gyms will close in the United States by the end of 2020. So it's been devastating. And I've got nearly 3,000 team members that have been furloughed. And some, to your point, were brought back and then had to get let go again. So it's been very difficult. Our heart does go to those you employ. And you said it so eloquently there, the pressure that you've too been under. I'm interested that you have provided apps, online classes, for free, why haven't you pursued that as sort of a new business line? Why haven't you charged? Why, why not encroach on that part of the market that is perhaps the way in which people will want to work out? Well, we think that you know one of the major contributors to COVID, especially COVID morbidity, is, is obesity. And there's been study after study, and Great Britain came out yesterday, the prime, Boris Johnson came out yesterday and said obesity is the number one issue that we're dealing with. He's now banning advertising until 9 p.m., that advertises fast food and high sugar foods and so yeah. forth. So with an obese population in the United States, with an incredibly morbidly obese population, we believe that we should give it out for free and allow people, at least if they're home, at least if they're quarantining, to have some form of exercise for free. So what's next for you? You're owned by a private equity firm. Have they said that they'll continue to back you? Are you thinking about permanently shutting down some locations? How do you go forward from here? Yeah, so we are owned by TPG Growth. Uh, myself and my business partner are also the largest minority owners of Crunch. And uh, look, we're committed to keep Crunch open as long as we can. But the reality is, is you know, I've worked my entire life, uh, 30 plus years in this industry. Before that, eight years as a U.S. Marine. No higher education, just grit, determination, and hard work. And I'm seeing it disappear before my eyes. And I'm seeing that same thing happen to my team members, my executive team, and so forth. And it's been devastating. But myself, my business partner, Mark Mastrove and TPG Growth are committed to putting the necessary capital, even if it's my own private capital, to keep this company afloat. But we can only do that for so long. At some point, um, without the governments, the state government in, in Cuomo, the state government in, in California with Newsom, not even giving us any indication as to when we can open or giving us guidelines to open, saying, meet these requirements and you can open. Um, it, it's hard to predict what the future may hold. In the US, one in every four US restaurants is on track to go out of business permanently due to coronavirus pandemic. That's according to a forecast by OpenTable. Debbie Sue took over as CEO of the restaurant booking service this month and spoke with us about why she is confident consumer demand will return after the pandemic. We started by asking her about what their data says about the long-term future for the restaurant industry. 
We're seeing a lot of trends as, you know, restaurants are opening and, and then having to close if, if the pandemic is spiking in the particular region that they're in. Um, the, the good news is that people in the U.S. and Canada are dining out again. Uh, we conducted a recent survey, and 25% of those respondents said that they are dining out at least once a week. And to no surprise, we're seeing outdoor reservations are also up 20% year over year. And also, restaurants are spending a lot of time because diners really care about safety. So making sure that they are um, limiting capacity, that they have hand, hand sanitizer, um, highlighting things like contact, contactless pay, uh, employees wearing masks. So that's very much top of mind for both restaurants and diners. Um, but, you know, the, the metric or the, the stat you cited is grim. Right. And at Open Table, we're on the front lines of this. And we, we actually think that 25 percent or one, one in four restaurants are not going to survive. And at this point, we think that might even be conservative. It's grim. And we're looking at pictures of your app, how you've tried to sort of enhance the support mechanism for these businesses by offering takeaway, perhaps some of them pivoted to groceries even, and you've helped with that pivot. I'm interested, Debbie, also by your global presence, because how grim is it versus the rest of the world? The UK, the Chancellor of the Exchequer there, doing a lot to try and support restaurants with money off, for example, on certain nights that you dine. You're in Mexico, you're in India, you're in Australia. How is the US faring in terms of the support for its restaurants versus the rest of the world? So you're, you're correct that um, the data looks very different depending on what country you look at. And we actually have all of this data published in the, our State of the Industry report. We see the U.K. and Germany actually looking almost flat year over year, which is great to see. Um, in, in the U.S., if you look at the U.S. as a whole, we're definitely down year to year, year over year. But um, each state and each city are so different. So you have pockets or regions where you're seeing almost flat year-over-year activity, and then you have other much more populated cities like New York where the dining demand and the reservations have really tanked. So it's great that we're a global company and that we, you know, we, it helps us to hedge and be in many, many markets at, you know, at once. But, um, you know, we're seeing a downward trend everywhere. It is perhaps more pronounced in markets like the U.S. and Mexico, versus some of our key markets in Europe. Debbie, I'm curious with your involvement with the restaurants that you work with, any lobbying going on in the Hill right now, what you're hoping for specifically from a stimulus package from Congress, and if Congress has been receptive to some of your discussions with them. Right. So Open Table is very supportive of the Restaurants Act. Um, you know, and we, we will come out and, and say that any government aid that we can be giving to restaurants right now um, is necessary. And for us on, the, on this call and for people who are listening and watching, the best ways we can be supporting rest, restaurants right now is dining out, whether that's, you know, going to the restaurant or ordering delivery or getting takeout. But absolutely any aid that governments can be providing to restaurants now is, is wonderful. All right, Debbie, you're taking over a job here, uh, a pretty uh, big job at a obviously pretty pivotal moment in uh, your industry and really for our economy overall. What is your growth story right now for Open Table specifically? What are you looking to do? Our mission is very much the same even during COVID. Our mission is to help people experience the world through dining. 
And actually, I would say these days, you know, we are reimagining or, you know, the way we think about dining or the way we dine out is evolving. And, you know, reservations are more important now than ever. So I think in terms of our relevance, um, you know, we've, we've never been more relevant. Um, we are looking at, you know, in, in, within restaurant tech, we know that this is going to be very much up and coming, um, you know, as the pandemic rages on, right? So contactless pay or takeout or online menus or ordering, you know, before you get to the restaurant or paying, you know, after your, after your meal on your app, all of those are things that Open Table is really focused on. And those are things that we're betting on um, to help restaurants and to help diners forge through this period. What about the competition? It was interesting. I was targeted with an ad earlier today of Google asking me to support small businesses by ordering takeout via their platform. You've also got Resi here in New York that's very prevalent. How do you situate yourself versus the competition and manage to all grow together? Yeah, we, we look upon competition very favorably. Open Table's an industry pioneer here, and we welcome you know, any signs or companies that are coming in and being innovative and um, thinking outside the box, um, it pushes us to be better. You know, Debbie, I just want to sort of end on a diversity note. We're in a moment at this time where we're looking to increase diversity, not only in the corporate level, in the boardrooms as well. And you're a new CEO, also in the middle of a pandemic, which I can <laughs> imagine how difficult that must be. How has it been like um, not only coming into this new role in the middle of one of the toughest recessions we've had, but also uh, being a diverse member of the team? It's been really wonderful so far. Family, I guess, for the last 11 years prior to Open Table was at Kayak. And it's always been a company that's really fostered talent, um, been a meritocracy. Um, and so I've, I've felt very supported you know, throughout my career here. And um, I couldn't be more excited to helm, you know, Open Table and, um, you know, our, our company's efforts going forward. So I'm, real, I'm really excited. And I'm, I always tell my husband and anyone who will listen to me, representation matters. And so, you know, I'm thrilled that I can do my part in that. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Despite the efforts of Black Lives Matters and others that are devoted to drawing attention to the perhaps winner-take-all urban economic system, experts say the virus and the economic slump will likely increase inequality in cities across the country. So what needs to be done to ensure a more equal recovery? We spoke about this with Indy Duttagupta, co-executive director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality, and started by asking him about what policies could ensure that the U.S. economy recovers in an inclusive way that lessens economic inequality. Look, the, the way to think about this is to appreciate that systemic racism, uh, even sexism, and other challenges that have been driving social and economic inequality for generations are really built into system after system, structure after structure, institution after institution. So 
the right answer is going to be quite multifaceted and comprehensive. Um, but what we are seeing with no doubt is that virtually every economic inequity that existed before the pandemic and recession is made much worse by those twin crises. So my hope is that Congress will get back to the negotiating table and really think hard about what they can enact that would be substantial, sustained, and really structural too, since we know that we can't go back to the way things were if we want to address inequity in this country. Yeah. Well, Indy, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, we're at a stage now where it doesn't look like Congress uh, is going to get back to the table anytime soon. And even if they do uh, this year, uh, it's probably going to be on something that's a little bit more short term. With regards to those longer term structural issues uh, that, that you say we need to address, is there a way that some of that can be, be accomplished without sort of being beholden to some of the politics that go on uh, with regards to our federal government? That's a great question, um, uh, Romaine. I think that there are certainly some things that uh, states can do and local governments can do. Um, in, in fact, when you think about our social protection system, a lot of it's actually run through the states in one way or another. So let's take our unemployment insurance system, which right now is so front and center uh, with 25 plus million participants um, in unemployment uh, programs right now. Um, the fact is that if you look across the states and you look at which states have the most meager systems of benefits, they tend to be the ones with the highest black population shares. So uh, states are, are driving a lot of the inequity we're seeing in access to uh, adequate unemployment benefits, which is obviously particularly important now with the expiration of the $600 uh, federal pandemic unemployment compensation increase, um, which was really a lifeline to so many people, but especially black and brown workers. I'm curious about how you're thinking about corporate responsibility as well in this moment, just in the last few days. And this is just as an example, Uber and Lyft were under pressure uh, because they're treating employees as freelancers and not bringing them on as full-time employees with benefits, with health insurance, with 401k plan, you know, whatever it, it be. What is the role at this moment with corporate responsibility to step up as well? Well, Look, on the one hand, I think that we have to acknowledge that the federal government has a unique role that all the private actors in the country together can't uh, supplant or replace or substitute for in any way. On the other, um, anyone with any power, any resources has some responsibility right now. When a country chooses collectively, uh, if unevenly, to reduce economic activity to save lives, um, you absolutely cannot blame anyone who's struggling um, for their problem. And uh, that means if a company is in a position to, uh, for example, uh, keep on workers um, rather than laying them off, maybe at reduced pay through uh, a program called work sharing that the unemployment insurance uh, system helps support, uh, a company should do that. If a company is able to support workers uh, to help them maintain um, continuity of health coverage, mm. um, that's particularly important when you think about the fact that this is a contagious disease pandemic. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I, I think there's a lot of possibilities there, um, but it, you know that doesn't really excuse uh, the federal government um, from acting. 
Aside from the federal government, what about the Fed? There's been talk from the Biden campaign that inequality should be something, a third prong that really the Federal Reserve should look at. Is, is that a right way of tackling things? Well, one of the important uh, lessons really looking at the business cycle um, over the last many decades, really in the post-war period, is that you know, the Federal Reserve, if nothing else, can sort of put the brakes on employment growth. And um, we have seen persistent gaps of uh, between black and white workers, for example, in unemployment. The black workers typically have twice the unemployment rates as white workers and are often the first to be laid off and the last to be hired. Um, so I, I do think that it's entirely appropriate for the Federal Reserve not to just make decisions based on, you know, say, the economic indicators that reflect primarily um, uh, a majority racial or ethnic group. Um, instead, mm. they should look hard at, look, is it true that, um, you know, we should, uh, right now, uh, we're not worried about this, but, um, you know, say slow down um, uh, an economy that's heating up um, when the unemployment rate overall seems low, but actually for some groups like black workers, it uh, remains um, at recession levels in many cases uh, when we're at the tightest labor markets for say white workers. Then we spoke with Adam Bowler, CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. The DFC was formed in 2018 by merging a number of different U.S. government agencies and partners with a private sector to finance solutions to critical challenges facing the developing world, with investments across energy, healthcare, critical infrastructure and technology sectors. Now, this somewhat obscure government agency was then thrust into the spotlight recently when it signed a letter of intent to loan $765 million of taxpayer money to Kodak, the struggling camera company to lead U.S. efforts to bring pharmaceutical manufacturing back to the U.S. Now, the odd choice of company to lead this charge, principally one with no history in pharmaceuticals, has raised questions about the financing vetting of Kodak. The deal is now on hold amid an investigation into potential insider trading. We started by asking him about the selection process and if he regrets the selection of Kodak now. So I think when we went out, the key thing here was, number one, is it a critical industry? And bringing ingredients back domestically in generic pharmaceuticals is a critical industry as defined by HHS and DOD. And then the second thing for us is, do they meet the loan criteria in concept? Um, and keep in mind, we don't give awards to people. It's not a winner, right? What you're doing is you're extending credit. And the question is whether they meet the criteria. So I'll use an example. If you apply for a mortgage and your fun friend applies for a mortgage, it's not who wins the mortgage. It's anybody that fits. So in this case, what we did, we evaluated. It looked like it met the initial criteria for a mortgage. We issued a letter of intent. Uh, we didn't make a loan. We issued a letter of intent. Then we reacted quickly when these allegations surfaced. So our job is to look at the facts, uh, and then you make your case, and then you, you make uh, your choice at that point. And so our view is, until these serious allegations come uh, go away, uh, we're going to stop uh, what we're doing here uh, based on what we see. 
So, I mean, Adam, I mean, there are a, a lot of people who, of course, question uh, the criteria of extending credit to a company like Kodak. There are also people, Adam, that question the criteria of Kodak as a uh, pharmaceutical or drug component maker. And I'm just curious as to what the discussion was within DFC uh, to go with a company like Kodak as opposed to going with a more established pharmaceutical company. So again, the way you're framing the question implies it's an either or, okay? So what happens is people apply just like they apply for a, mo a loan. If they meet the criteria, uh, then you're able to move forward that loan. So other people making generic ingredients can apply to, uh, through the Defense Production Act right. to DFC. I understand that, like Adam, but did so, any other so companies apply? So it's not a, apply? A, a win or a lose. Did any there other are, companies other than Kodak apply? There are plenty of companies that have applied in the pharmaceutical space. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say because as we move them through the process, Kodak happened to be one of the first that applied. We've only introduced, the EO came out about two months ago, right? So they're one of the first that applied. We, we uh, kind of look at them in time uh, and we will evaluate those applications as they come in. And so the, the answer is absolutely others have applied in generic pharmaceutical ingredients, um, in healthcare broadly, and we will look to extend credit as appropriate if they meet the terms uh, in the same process that we do everywhere. So we have a process, uh, it's set up, uh, and we follow that process. On those broader issues, how are you thinking about restoring some of that domestic production that you're talking about, bringing domestic pharmaceutical production, and is your office best equipped to be handling that? So we do it in partnership with DOD. The way to think about our partnership with DOD is that DFC, which is essentially a bank, uh, is essentially the loan underwriter on behalf of DOD with HHS input. Uh, and so I would certainly hope that agencies like HHS uh, and DOD have the ability to, uh, to look, and they do, analyze where there are strategic deficiencies and then help due diligence here. So uh, that's where your significant subject matter expertise is coming in, which we consult everywhere we go in, in looking at these. And, and so broadly, I want to speak broadly about DPA generally uh, also, because the administration came out with a report today uh, because we wanted to say shed full transparency on our use of the Domestic uh, Production Act. Uh, we've done it 78 times uh, in the last few months, which is, you know, probably the greatest industrial mobilization since World War II. I mean, not since the days of FDR have you seen this used. We've used it in ventilators. Uh, we used it in one single order with 3M. We secured an order bringing from China back to the United States 300 million N95 masks. Uh, ventilators, I think you know uh, that no American has gone without a ventilator if they need it. That's directly related to Defense Production Act orders that we used in GM, Ventec, um, and in other ventilator manufacturers as well. And what do you think you've learned from that experience? Because we sadly brace ourselves potentially for a second wave and of the COVID crisis here in the US. Meanwhile, there is looking at how the DPA, the Defense Production Act, was used to particularly get ventilators, as you say, no American went without a ventilator, according to you, but perhaps you overpaid. The House Oversight Committee looking at the White House overpaying as much as $500 million contracts, for example. What have you learned? Do you think it went in the right way as you would have hoped it to? I think the process that you have is you actually, you absolutely needed to move quickly to act. Uh, and then these contracts then go to HHS career people that contract for them. And that's the process that went through for every ventilator company, uh, Philips, any of them included. And so again, I will defer to the HHS career contractors uh, that went through a specific process. Um, and then if there's, there's an issue, we'll deal with it.
Adam, uh, so I, I want to talk about just the general mission, though, of your agency uh, or your office right now. Obviously, it was originally set up to primarily be an overseas investment vehicle, and it's obviously been tasked to help fight some of the domestic issues going on with COVID-19. What exactly is the status, though, of that international mission? Are you still uh, making investments abroad, and if so, where? Uh, absolutely. That, that remains the core and critical uh, mission of my agency. Uh, so just to give you a sense, on the domestic side, we have 14 people that focus on domestic. On the international side, we have about 450 people that focus internationally. So what I think about every day uh, is not domestic deals. What I think about every day is the portfolio here. Uh, and so we're very heavy invested in Africa, very heavy in Latin America and in Indo-Pacific. And our goal here, if you think about what DFC does, number one, we drive development in emerging countries. And number two, we are countering China in their Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. So that is our broader goal. We have quarterly board meetings. June was our biggest board meeting ever because our belief during COVID is that DFC is needed more than ever. We have to show as allies to other countries, emerging countries, that we are there for them. We're providing credit. We're providing liquidity. Uh, and September will be even bigger than that. So I want to be very clear uh, that we have our eye on the ball big time. In fact, more than ever before um, uh, as we go forward. So you mentioned the China Belt and Road Initiative. Simple question. Yes. Can we keep up? I think we can. Uh, the one thing I'll say is, uh, as I went out all the time, I haven't been going out internationally as much because I can't catch a flight. Uh, but when I am out there, I will tell you something that is absolutely consistent. Uh, every single head of state that I meet with tells me, Adam, we did not want to take money from China, but we had no alternative. And when Congress uh, created DFC, which, by the way, was totally bipartisan act, I was confirmed unanimously through voice vote, and that's because this is an American value. It's not a partisan value. When they created DFC, it was directly to, to focus on this. And the advantage we have is American ingenuity and our reputation is much stronger. And at the end of the day, if you think about China, why is China investing? Other countries know that's because they want outsized influence. We tried that. It was called colonialism. It doesn't work. So this is a new form of China colonialism. Our view, what do we want? We want open, free, competitive markets. We want to keep sovereign country status, but that is our biggest element of our foreign policy here. And that plays extremely well relative to China that has very suspicious ambitions oftentimes. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.